A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Hey, everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Kathleen Ballou, Assistant Professor of U.S. History at the University of Chicago and author of Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. Let's hear what she has to say about the Oklahoma City bombing. Hi, Dr. Ballou. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Uh, fine, thanks. I'm happy to be here. So can you start off by telling us a little bit about your field of study? Sure. Um, I'm a historian of the present, I suppose. So I study the long aftermath of warfare, and I also study uh, white, the white power movement and kind of vigilante violence and racist violence more broadly. If you could help us understand, how did the Gulf War affect the early 90s period in U.S. history? Great question. Complex question. Um, the Gulf War had a lot of ramifications going in a lot of different directions. But I think, you know, one of the clearest ways to understand it is that it is a war. Um, it was a short war. It's one that people thought of as restaging the Vietnam War and ending what people called Vietnam Syndrome, or the idea that America felt emasculated and disempowered by the loss of the Vietnam War and that we somehow needed to collectively fight and win another war in order to sort of clear that legacy. Um, but the... I think the more important impact for understanding the Oklahoma City bombing is that it created another moment of aftermath of warfare. If you look at uh, Klan and white power activity across the, the whole arc of American history, 
what is really significant is that the surges in that activity align more consistently with the aftermath of warfare than they do with poverty, anti-immigration violence, um, civil rights gains, and any other number of measures that people have often understood as being related to clan activity. What we see instead is that every time there is a war, there is an aftermath effect. Now, what's really interesting is we might think that that has to do with simply the return of veterans from combat. It turns out that that impact is across ages, across gender, across people who did and did not serve. All of us become more violent in the aftermath of warfare. So you see that percolating across American society in the 1990s. So survivalism was a big thing when it comes to Timothy McVeigh. What is that? And also, what is doomsday prepping and how do they t- the two of them differ from one another? I suppose I'd say that doomsday prepping is one uh, small or maybe large facet of the broader idea of survivalism. Survivalism is the total community of people who believe in the imminent end of the world and are preparing to outlast some kind of major disaster. Um, a lot of those people are motivated simply for personal reasons of sort of, you know, generalized distrust or perhaps some generalized religious belief around the end of days. Um, But a section of the survivalist movement is organized and is part of the white power movement, which is to say a group of activists who are seeking to, well, in the present moment, who are are seeking to bring about an end-of-days moment in which they can realize a race war and try to create major social change from the unrest that would be involved. A doomsday prepper, then, is somebody who is preparing for doomsday by amassing food, medical supplies, food and water access, etc., whatever they think they need to outlast the end times. Um, And what I'll say is that there's one other flavor to this in the late 1980s and early 1990s, which is a white theology called Christian identity. Christian identity is a belief system that claims that white people, in this case, overtly racist white people, are the true lost tribe of Israel, the chosen people of God, and that they are going to be called upon to become warriors of God in the time of tribulation. Now, significantly, a lot of people, uh, especially in evangelical congregations that are more mainstream, have beliefs about a religious end of the world, the return of Christ, etc. But most of those congregations believe in something called rapture, when the faithful will be peacefully transported to heaven in kind of a moment of saving good Christians before this very violent end of days happens, the time of tribulations. Um, Christian identity has no rapture. So it has that intense apocalyptic belief without the exit strategy for the faithful. Instead, the faithful are expected to take on a sort of holy war. Um, And so we see people in this theology amassing not only food and water, but uh, gathering weapons because they believe that their job is to clear the world of enemies, which as a reminder is everyone who is not white before Christ can return. We talked a little bit about this uh, concept, sort of, uh, during the Mans- when we discussed the Manson murders and just his idea of this race war. So it, it, my, my instinct is that it, it was something that was, I don't know, in the water uh, for a while. And the 80s and 90s kind of like put it in a can and uh, started selling it at uh, local stores. I think that's fair. I think the other thing to remember is just like... Um, 
You know, often when we're thinking about fringe actors and fringe political beliefs, what we're looking at is kind of a hyper-crystallized version of something that is actually quite mainstream um, and has much broader purchase in American society. So I think if you want to think about the apocalypse a little bit more broadly, you know, it's not at all a fringe belief at mid-century to think in the United States that nuclear war and the end of days are imminent, right? I mean, school children watch those videos about Bert the Turtle and about duck and cover and about all the ways that the end of the world is going to happen any second. So one of the things that's happening in the 1990s is that there's a big moment where the Cold War ends, the Berlin Wall comes down, and the idea that Russians are going to attack and end us with a nuclear bomb at any second, that enemy disappears. But all those people that were walking around with this deeply held sense of imminent apocalypse don't just lose that belief overnight. So there's a way that the enemy in the story disappears, and we have all these people wandering around with deep apocalyptic belief, and they're sort of people in search of an apocalypse. One way that this cuts is towards survivalism and anti-statism, but I mean, you can see it all over the place in American culture. I mean, like, you need look no farther than all of the zombie movies of the 90s and early aughts to see how much people were interested in this idea of apocalypse. And I mean... Um, you know, Y2K is something that from the vantage point of <laughs> of the present moment seems like a very cute and harmless apocalypse, right? <laughs> um, I mean, it's a very sweet apocalypse. Like hardly yeah. anything happens. Nobody really gets hurt, you know. I'll um, take that. I would take a Y2K now <laughs> over many things that we're experiencing in the present. But, you know, at the time, people were legitimately terrified that when computers stopped, it wasn't going to be just like, oh, my email won't open. They were worried about planes falling from the sky and collapse of the banking system. And like, you know, what if all of our home heaters don't work? These were big infrastructure fears that had they been realized would have been a major catastrophe. So so I think that the, the 90s really are an era that is preoccupied with apocalyptic imaginary in a way that's very open because, you know, before 9-11, there's not another clear enemy that's a nationally agreed upon sort of story. Right. So this kind of segues into my next question, which is what role did the events of Ruby Ridge and Waco have on the rise of this anti-government uh, sentiment or movement? Um, yeah. So Ruby Ridge and Waco in 92 and 93 are enormously important to the rise of the white power and militia movements because mm. to people in the movement, um, they are seen as moments of um, not just sort of state overstep, but as the targeted persecution of people with this set of belief systems. Um, one way we know that is the way that people in the militia movement talked about the death of Vicki Weaver, who is the woman who was killed while holding her infant daughter um, by a sniper at Ruby Ridge. Um, and they talk about her as a martyr and, you know, the deep identification with her plight and the plight of that family, um, which had, you know, strong ties to Aryan nations and other parts of the white power movement, brought people to, uh, you know, to the site. There was a roadblock at the foot of the mountain where the Ruby Ridge standoff happened. Um, and if you look at those photographs, perhaps you can put some on your website for people to see. Um, what you see is not just, you know, a whole bunch of dudes and camo fatigues, but also women and children who are there talking about what this meant to them and their families and their sense of security. Um, and they talked a lot about Vicki Weaver as sort of a martyred white woman. Um, 
there's a quote that I would have to go back and look at, but it was something along the lines of 10,000 Randy Weavers are spread out from coast to coast is what one leader said about thinking about how this had inflamed people. Another, um, another person talked about the death of Vicki Weaver as a symbolic attack on all American white women, all American white mothers and white wives. Um, and they talked about this as a call to arms. Um, significantly, that call to arms reached a broader group of people in the militia movement than it would have even a few years earlier because of the way that the paramilitary white power movement had organized in the late 1980s and shifted into the militia movement. Now, Waco is a little bit trickier because Waco is a multiracial community. It's not a white power proper um, community. Um, and certainly, like, uh, the community that was led by David Koresh at Waco was much more, I think we would classify it as a apocalyptic religious group rather than part of an organized white power activism that was attempting to do a whole bunch of revolutionary violence and mass, ta- uh, mass attacks against civilians, infrastructure targets, assassinations, and many of them were attempting to overthrow the government um, at this time. Um, but... What's really significant is that if you look at how the white power movement talked about Waco, they reported it as if it was a white power community. They only showed the pictures of the white people who had been killed in the standoff. They often talked about it as if it had been an attack on a like-minded white power compound. Fascinating. I did not know that angle. In an effort to understand all of these terms that we're throwing around, Um, Can you explain the difference between uh, the anti-government paramilitary movement and right-wing extremists, or I guess, do they go hand in hand? Uh, Yeah. Sure. So when I say white power movement, what I'm talking about is a broad-based coalition movement of Ku Klux Klan, neo-Nazi, radical tax resistor, skinhead, and then in the 90s, also militia members who came together uh, in the late 1970s and early 1980s and declared war on the federal government. Um, This was a movement that had membership in every region of the country. It had people in rural, suburban, and urban areas. Um, It's a movement that, in all ways other than race, was very diverse. It had people across gender, men, women, and children. It had people across social class, ranging from, you know, felons and high school dropouts to religious leaders and aerospace engineers. It had people in all walks of life, including, um, you know, sort of regular people and also people with highly specialized skill sets like active duty troops and veterans. Um, So it was really a broad mobilization across American society. That said, we're still talking about a very small group of people, a fringe movement. Um, The other thing I would just say for people is that I think a lot of us walk around with this idea of a, a political continuum with the left, right, and center, but it has some utility. I think most people pick that up in civics or in high school history class, I think often it comes from a sort of like uh, Stalin's on the left, Hitler's on the right, and we're in the middle because, you know, USA. But actually, I think that in the late 20th century and into the present, there are ways that it's more of a circle with the fringes touching each other 
Um, so that the left fringe and the right fringe both have survivalism going in this period, right? Um, by the time of the WTO protests in 1999, which is a mostly leftist anarchist mobilization, we see people in the white power movement writing in favor of the anarchist demonstrators with the logic of like, oh, well, the enemy of the state is certainly going to be my friend, even if we don't share everything in common. Um, and a lot of issues show up in the white power movement that you might think of as leftist issues like organic diet and macrobiotic diet and anti-fluoridation and anti-vaccination. All of these things are sort of like live anti-statist issues that really run across those two ends of the fringe. Um, and that's not to say that those, uh, sort of political formations are the same at all. But just to say that like what we think of as the right-wing fringe um, might not be the most productive way to think about what's happening there because um, I think that there is this broader sort of apocalyptically minded double fringe thing happening, at least by the end of the 90s, that deserves some attention. And this kind of touches upon what you're talking about. How did the, the white power movement use these fringe groups kind of to gain traction in the 90s? What were some of the tactics? So the relationship between the white power movement and the militia movement is important to understand. And it's a little tricky. But if you think about overlapping circles of activity, like a kind of like a Venn diagram, um, the white power movement in the 1990s would be almost entirely inside the big circle of the militia movement. Meaning that if you want to know where the people, the weapons, the tactics, the strategy, of which there are a lot in the 1980s, including serious weaponry like, um, you know, everything from AR-15s and M-16 semi-automatics to like anti-tank guns and homemade napalm, all of that stuff and all of that military training and all of that momentum ends up inside the militia movement where it is operationalizing violence inside the militia movement. However, it's not as simple as saying the militia movement is the same as the white power movement because the militia movement is much bigger. Um, it's more broad. And it is possible to participate in a militia in the early 1990s and not only not be, you know, an avowed and open racist, but to not know anybody like that who's in the movement. Um, because it's a big anti-government groundswell that has a broader ideology than that. Um, however, the militia movement does a lot of things that show us that it's not neutral, um, including it grows in size after the Oklahoma City bombing. That's not what happens if you decry that violence, right? Um, including there's not, you know, outright denial of that violence by many components of the militia movement. So I think we know that it is uh, certainly a right-wing manifestation, even where it is not overtly a white power movement. And now specifically talking about Timothy McVeigh, mm -hmm. how was he, I guess you could use the word nurtured uh, by these movements to uh, then, you know, do these horrific acts? I don't know how many minutes you have here, but I think that the the full sort of record of McVeigh's involvement with the white power movement would take us too long to say out loud. We would all get tired and need to go home before I was done reciting it to you. So I think um, I think the first thing to say is just this is not at all at the level of conspiracy theory or conjecture, but there is a concrete record of McVeigh's life, words, and action that decisively place him within the white power movement. Um, a few examples. 
might be uh, that he was not only in the Michigan militia, but rose to a, uh, a role in the Michigan militia that was usually reserved for people who were very deeply involved in the, in the group, meaning that he was security for leadership. That is a role that was for soldiers in the movement. Um, McVeigh once lived with someone who knew the Murrah building so well that he could draw the design schematic from memory. So they talked about this for a long time before the bombing happened. Um, the Murrah building was a target of this movement beginning in 1983 um, McVeigh uh, and people he asso- was associated with were familiar with a Klan paramilitary training camp that had been open and closed since the early 1980s um, and had been closed by a court order after a lawsuit by the Southern Poverty Law Center because um, the white power movement was using that facility to train people to harass Vietnamese refugees um, and fishing communities in the Gulf of, of Texas the Texas coast in the early 80s. So then it was closed, but it had reopened by the early 90s. Um, and one of the possible co-conspirators with McVeigh trained there. Um, and then there's the question of the date of the bombing um, on April 19th, 1995. Um This is, of course, the anniversary of the Waco siege. And Waco was, of course, a profoundly traumatic event for McVeigh. There are accounts of him watching the tanks roll into the compound and the death that unfolded in Waco. Um, There are accounts of McVeigh watching this with tears streaming down his face. This is not a person who, you know, regularly had tears streaming down his face. Um, So that's a profoundly moving date. But April 19th, 1995 was also the scheduled execution date for a white power activist who had once uh, plotted the bombing of the Murrah building um, mm. much earlier. Um, McVeigh also carried writings with him from the white power movement, including one treatise uh, that was a, a common um, sort of lodestar manual for how to carry out white power violence called the Turner Diaries. Um, and he was wearing a shirt with a slogan that had been promoted by a white power leader in 1992. Um, and that leader was one with a very long career of white power violence, including that same story about Klan harassment of Vietnamese refugees in the Gulf. Um, so this goes way back. It's one of the actions that you can look at and say like, wow, this is certainly part of a movement. Um, it's the culminating action, not just of one person's life, but of many, many ideas and ideologies and activist careers that had built and built and built into this one moment. So extremely influenced. Extremely. I mean, I mean, I mean, like I've, I've studied uh, this particular movement for more than 10 years now. And I, there's no doubt in my mind that he was deeply, deeply embroiled in this movement. Now, in terms of the internet, I'm, uh, how did that uh, play into, um, I guess, the, these groups, you know, uh, communicating and also could this have happened if there was no internet? This, the Oklahoma city bombing? Yes. I suppose. I mean, people have plotted acts of mass violence without the internet plenty across the course of American history. And they've carried out, uh, acts of revolutionary terror plenty without the internet. Um, but I think, I think the internet played an enormously important role in one of the strategies that the movement used that brought it to Oklahoma City, which is to say um, the white power movement uh, in its campaign of 
revolutionary violence, which I, by which I mean um, simply anti-government violence that was meant to overthrow the country, um, of which the Oklahoma City bombing was a part, um, operated with two kind of new strategies beginning in the early 1980s. Um, one of them was the idea of leaderless resistance, which is the idea of people working in a cell, much like we would understand cell-style terror. Um, the idea that one or a few activists could work um, in a cell towards a common set of goals, but without any communication with other activists and without any direct communication with leadership. Um, now, leaderless resistance has a number of consequences we could think about. Um, it was created to make it difficult for FBI and ATF agents to infiltrate these groups and to disrupt violence um, and to make it difficult to prosecute them in a court of law if they were caught. Um, and it was quite good at both of those things. But I would argue to you that the bigger legacy of leaderless resistance is that we sort of as a society have lost sight of this entire thing at all. Um, because what we get instead are a whole bunch of stories about lone wolf gunmen, lone wolf terrorists, or a few bad apples. Um, and you can't see me on the podcast, but I'm making air quotes around all of this. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, these stories about lone wolves and a few bad apples make us think that these are scattered problems when in fact what we have is a rising tide of this activity that we've really never confronted as a society. Um, so that was the first strategy is leaderless resistance. The second one is the internet. Leaderless resistance was made possible by a thing called Liberty Net, which came out in 1983, 84, um, <laughs> which, is, which is fully more than a decade before most people recognized that this was happening. And Liberty Net was the proto-internet version of Facebook. Um, they had a series of keyword protected message boards for the white power movement, um, which, by the way, it took the FBI like two years to crack. So they had at least two years of unfettered communication. Um, and on these message boards, they posted things like assassination lists and relative target values and ideologies and screeds and things like that. But they also posted personal ads and recipes and homeschooling materials. So what we have is really the first uh, example that I'm aware of of social network activism, where you see the violent plan emerging with the social network that's going to sustain and hold together this movement. Um, we know LibertyNet was important because um, when white power groups were doing uh, lucrative crime in the 1980s, like when they robbed Bon Marche department stores and Brinks armored cars and got, in some cases, multiple millions of dollars uh, out of those actions, what they did was go around the country distributing the money to different groups so that each group could get a computer because this is before they already had one. And then they sent an activist around teaching everybody how to use LibertyNet so that they could be communicating. Wow, this is kind of giving me the creeps. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an appropriate reaction. <laughs> so what is it because of what we're talking about? Uh, uh, because of the um, uh, leadership, uh, I, I, lone wolf leadership, is that what it's called? Leaderless resistance <laughs> Leaderless. Is what want to call it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, so. what is it about this time that made these groups feel so emboldened? So leaderless resistance turned out to be a really effective strategy, um, as we know. I, so, so what made them feel emboldened is a great question. There's a series of events that made them feel emboldened. I think that the big one and the one that really paves the way for 
what I think reasonable people would agree is a catastrophic misunderstanding of the Oklahoma City bombing, Mm -hmm. is this major trial in 1987-88, where um, there was a coordinated prosecution of a bunch of this crime. And, you know, when you see a huge trial like this, we're talking about 13 activists and leaders in this movement standing trial and charges that were very rare, including the charge of seditious conspiracy, which is to say the attempt to violently overthrow the United States. Um, that's not a, an ordinary charge. That's not something people often stand trial for in American history. It's pretty rare. Um, and when you see a big trial like this, and in this case, it, it involved the fruits of several smaller prosecutions, meaning that for years leading up to this, um, what would happen is that people would make plea bargains and deals and all kinds of other things that created this growing body of evidence and testimony that was supposed to become decisive in this trial. Right. So everybody who had stood trial leading up to this, many of them had become um, what we would call state's witness, which is they agreed to testify on behalf of the government and against the the fellow members of their movement. Um, This, you know, that kind of testimony is the kind of record we only get 10 or 20 years after the fact. And that's usually the only way we get to see how a violent underground of a social movement works. It's very difficult to see as it's happening. So we come to this major sedition trial in 87, 88. It's in Fort Smith, Arkansas, 13 people standing trial, and it fails spectacularly. Um, There are a number of reasons for this, um, but I think that even a casual listener could agree that there are big problems. There are things like two jurors had romantic relationships with defendants, which I think, you know, is at the very least not an impartial jury. There are big hunks of evidence that are excluded because of chain of custody problems. So for instance, one of the major leaders of the movement is arrested while on the land in Mexico and everything he has with him is not included in the trial because people didn't handle it right when, when the chain of custody was happening. So we don't get to, the jury didn't get to see things like the medallion proving he was part of one of these terrorist groups, the many um, falsification of ID paperwork packets he had with him. A lot of it is just not counted. Um, the jury also doesn't get to see some of the physical evidence, including like a whole hamper full of weapons that the movement had amassed. I mean, the other thing is, you know, it's it's beyond historical question that this movement was involved in seditious conspiracy and attempting to overthrow the United States. That's what they said they were doing. One of the people who's acquitted in this trial immediately starts a publication called The Seditionist and continues to call for violent action in years to come. But what the sedition trial teaches this movement is that leaderless resistance is quite good at keeping them safe from prosecution. It's quite good at preventing effective infiltration. And it's quite good at limiting the ways that the public really can understand this as a problem. Because what they find in the trial um, includes that, um, you know, these people standing trial are able to to claim credibility in a whole lot of ways through their service in Vietnam, through their family relationships, through the presence of their wives in the courtroom, um, some of whom are doing things like talking conspicuously about their back pain in a way that is intruding on the court record and things like that that are sort of like 
performance of martyrdom. The headline after this trial um, in one paper is jubilant racists acquitted. And there is a photograph of one movement leader holding his wife in his arms. Um, This photograph is amazing. She's wearing a long white dress. She, for some reason, has no shoes on. She has long hair draped over her husband's shoulder. It's a scene that would come from a movie like Birth of a Nation. I mean, like it's a scene that is incredibly evocative, not only to this movement, to a but to a broader public. Now, the people that were trying to prosecute this trial at the FBI seem to have had a major moment of policy change because the sedition trial was such a spectacular failure. So what we have to think about is the immediate sequence of events going from the failure of that trial in 1988 to the events of Waco and Ruby Ridge, which were not only tragic, but also major failures of public relations for the Department of Justice. Um, They got, you know, thousands of angry letters um, from people, certainly not just from people in the white power movement. Many people thought that they had overstepped at Waco and Ruby Ridge. Um, So there is a policy change after all of this where they decide there is a, a memo that I have not seen, but that another journalist documented a memo that said, we will no longer try to prosecute acts of white power violence as part of a movement. We're just going to look for individual crime. And that's the policy that's in place when the Oklahoma City bombing happens. That's also the journalistic framework of the lone wolf and the few bad apples that's in place when the Oklahoma City bombing happens. So what we get is the largest deliberate mass casualty on American soil between Pearl Harbor and 9-11. And most people have no idea what it meant. Wow. Major historical flub uh, on our part. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <Huge>. And massive. <laughs> well, it's sort of like a, a catastrophic failure of understanding that goes across a whole bunch of different spheres of American society, right? Like to get that story that misunderstood takes some mis- big mistakes from, you know, from the point of view of surveillance agents and the FBI strategy, prosecutorial strategy, juror instruction strategy, but also, you know, misunderstanding by journalists, by people in public discourse. People go along thinking this was just one disaffected guy and maybe a few fellow bad apples when actually it was organized domestic terror that struck us right in the heart of the nation. And, um, you know, it was, it was an act of violence carried out by a movement that clearly continued. We see people in this movement now who hang McVeigh's picture um, and celebrate that action. And do you think that this act of domestic terrorism changed the American uh, perspective that uh, terrorism comes, you know, from a foreign, foreign entity or it happens? Did, did it change that or did it not? Not at all. I think that that perception only really began to change, I would say, in the last few months. Um, I think experts and scholars and watchdogs and the people who pay very close attention to this have sort of spent a lot of energy shouting into the wind for a while now, begging people to compare the death tolls of say, Islamist terror and domestic terror, begging people to pay attention to the the death tolls when they're talking about, you know, um, quote unquote, a few bad actors on both sides. One of those sides has a long history of causing death and destruction, of um, plotting and carrying out mass attacks on American civilians, and the other does not. Um, 
And I think only now are we really starting to see some of the definitional change needed to really rethink how we allocate resources, how we allocate um, our alarm, and how we allocate our attention around all of this. Anything about allocating uh, alarm is what we are all about. Here. Sure. <laughs> sure. So, finally, um, I obviously, you know, well, I shouldn't say obviously, I'm curious to know if you had to pick one person or thing that is to blame for the Oklahoma City bombing, who or what would you pick? Oh, man. This is very, very tricky. <laughs> I mean, I think it's white supremacy. I think that, you know, this is a really interesting thought exercise that you have built into your format here. But I I think that um, McVeigh flipped the switch on the bomb. There's no way around the fact that McVeigh flipped the switch on the bomb. But he gave this interview, uh, actually quoting that movie, A Few Good Men, where he said something along the lines of, isn't it kind of scary that it was just me? Isn't it kind of scary that one man could wreak this kind of hell? And the thing that is immediately apparent from reading even just a biography of McVeigh is that in no way was this the work of one person. In no way was this, this hell was not the work of one person. This is at the very most basic level, the work of a movement. But to understand how an act like that could strike at the heartland of America and then disappear, right? And then be totally misunderstood and that the movement could then go on and continue right? This is, this is as if um, something like 9-11 had happened and we didn't really put it in our history books and we didn't really understand it in our stories that we tell ourselves and we didn't really advocate um, or change the way that we think about things or reorganize our systems of prosecution and, um, and incarceration to address the problem such that here we see it recurring, excuse me, recurring again in the present moment, um, and we're dealing with a movement that has been decades, if not generations, in action. Um, I think it's uh, white supremacy, and by that I mean not just individual belief systems and not just this very small fringe movement of violent white power activists who are, you know, of the, of the probably pretty large chunk of the American populace who is white supremacist. This is a tiny, tiny fraction that is both overtly you know, out about that and also condones violence. Those are two differences. Mm -hmm. But when I talk about white supremacy, I'm also talking about the whole set of histories and the system of governance that continues to ensure that this can keep going, which is um, harder to unpack and untangle. Dr. Ballou, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your expertise on the matter. Uh, thank you for coming on our show. Sure. Sorry to be an alarmist, I suppose, but um, I'm happy to find people who are interested in learning more about these events. You are very welcome here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hello. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hello. What about that interview, you guys? I mean, I, I wish I was in Dr. Ballou's history class. How, how bad do you wish you were there? She was so cool. I mean, we actually got like a private class. <laughs> Should we just That's keep right. it to ourselves to keep it private? I mean, it was so awesome. But I guess if people are listening to this, they've already heard they've it. They've heard it. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> too late so I for like that. I like how your instinct is to keep knowledge to yourself. <laughs> it's a like surprise. A, you don't want to spoil who it. Brought up the fact that it was a private class, but it, <laughs> we know we're putting it on a pot. She was incredible. Yeah, I and, think we all just graduated from the University of Chicago. Yes, we totally did. <laughs> she was awesome. I I thought that, and she obviously, you know, what that was an abbreviated interview. I wish we had more time with her because she clearly could talk about that uh, that subject for quite a bit. So, what about the the verdict? Because she kind of, uh, I don't know, you can say schooled us uh, on, <laughs> on, 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 you know, maybe the, the things that we may, were not thinking or taking into consideration. I, what do you think? Because I have some thoughts. Well, I definitely think we made an, a misstep in letting white supremacy off the hook because we weren't looking at that as the driving force. Um, but obviously, it's all connected. Also, her talking about that trial, that Arkansas trial that went awry, I mean, that is something I've never even heard of. And we could obviously do a whole episode about that. And maybe we should, because that totally... it totally shifts your perspective on these sort of when the media calls these lone wolf incidents and and when they say that these are just a few bad apples. It's so it's sort of like 
well, now hang on a second. We've got to give that some more thought. Like there's obviously something deeper going on here. And so, you know, I would love to be able to learn a little bit more about that and get to the bottom of that whole thing. And absolutely shocking that we didn't, we were never taught that in school. I mean, that, that, that was a massive, uh, I, I don't know, at least in college. <laughs> right. Well, maybe yeah, they yeah. didn't have enough time in high school, but come on, stick it in in college. Like, that, <laughs> that's an hour. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's like, it, what, what is it exactly? It's like an, it's approach to, an approach to understanding how sort of um, the justice is carried out in terms of domestic terrorism versus international terrorism. I guess it's like a, it, it's, it's, it's pretty in-depth. I, I guess mean, it's a class. It, but here's my point. I think in, she actually does currently teach it in college. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, why didn't anyone sign me up for her class? <laughs> Here's You're my the point. one who picked the acting classes, okay? <laughs> Nobody forced you. What do you to mean? Take Realism voice. and naturalism was a great choice. <laughs> uh, but here's the thing, uh, and and I'm not gonna. I'm only gonna make this quick point. Uh, think about all the days that we went to high school, right? That was four years of our lives, and history class was, you know, one hour of five out of uh, seven days a week, right? You're, you're telling me that at no point did, did our, our teachers have an hour? Like, think of all those hours. What were we doing with those hours? Well, there's a lot of history, in fairness. <laughs> <laughs> that clearly we didn't cover. But I also feel like now that you say that, I feel like history should be like 95% of curriculum. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more, Amanda. <laughs> well, and also, to you know, there's also like current events. Like, remember, that was like a tiny little sliver of school, like where you would study current events. Uh, maybe there should be more of that discussion um, because this, these, these sort of recurring themes keep sort of popping up, especially this uh, perspective on w- white supremacy and right. this sort of... Um, judicial process around it. Well, for me, having spoken to Dr. Ballou, I think I would like to change my verdict. And I think I would like to flip it. Um, Mm. I would like to give white supremacy, I would send them to jail, and I would give McVeigh the slap. I would continue to um, maintain the backhand, the backhand for those who didn't tattletale. Um, because I think they missed an opportunity to uh, stop such a horrific act. But I think we did get that wrong. I, I, I think for what we usually look at the bigger picture and, and for once we kind of picked the, the we, we tried to be like, OK, you're the guy who flipped the switch. You should be going to jail. And it, perhaps it wasn't the one to do it with. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. I think we've, you know, we're owning it. We made a mistake. <laughs> Dr. Baloo, she showed us the way. And I, I think we have to, I think we have to amend the verdict. I'm with you on that. Okay. I concur. All right. So it's settled. White supremacy, you're going to the alarmist jail. Timothy McVeigh, you're getting the big slap. Uh, I guess that that feels good because we finally put white supremacy in jail. I, I okay. thought we had already done that. Did had we? we? Well, they're slippery, and you know they can get as they as I say they they find ways of getting out. So yeah. if we put them back in jail, that's because oh they, we, they, we put for Tulsa we massacre put white entitlement 
white, white entitlement. entitlement in jail. Yeah. So this now white different. supremacy. This is uh, the white supremacy groups. Um, slowly, we're putting all, all of these uh, terrible uh, white things in jail. <laughs> <laughs> one by it's one. Good. Okay, work. Our work is done now. Back to bed. <laughs> Amanda sleeps. <laughs> Whenever we're not recording, she's just sleeping. That's right. I, I do take three hour naps after every alarm is recording. It's <laughs> just, exhausting. It's hard work. Yeah, you, your brain has to let it sink in. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Stay tuned uh, for our episode next week. We will be covering the Kanye West Taylor Swift feud. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.